Good day and welcome again to our Bible study. Today we're going to be starting a new chapter in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. We'll be covering John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and the title of today's lesson is Jesus Talks with a Samaritan Woman. So what we're going to see in this section of chapter 4 isn't normal. We're going to see a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. Now, understand that in the culture, this didn't happen back then, right? You never would see any Jew whatsoever, especially a Jewish man, associate with a Samaritan, and particularly a Samaritan woman. I mean, it just didn't happen in the Jewish culture back in these days. But this Jewish man that we're going to talk about today is Jesus. And we know that although he is Jew, he isn't your typical Jewish man. He's our Savior. Amen? He's, he's, he's the only begotten Son, right? He, he's the Lamb of God that came in to, to take away the sins of the world, right? So what we're going to see in this lesson, this lesson today is that it's going to show us the mindset, you can say, of our Heavenly Father. So with that being said, open up your Bibles to John chapter 4, and we're covering verses 1 through 10. Starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went once more to the Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sukkar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. Some of your Bibles might say the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that asks you for a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, go back to verse 1, and let's kind of decipher what's happening here in this story. Verse 1 states this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples, some of your Bibles might say people, than John. So we see here that word you can say is getting around the nation of Israel, right? And, and particularly around Judea and so forth, that Jesus was baptizing more people than John was, right? And, and this is a problem for the Pharisees. This is a problem for the religious leaders, because remember, the religious leaders are all about power. They're all about control, right? They want the center of attention to be on themselves. Now, we know from the previous studies that John the Baptist had a huge following, right? And, and, and we've seen that John the Baptist was anointed by God to pave the way for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, right? And John's doing this. And if you go back to last week's lesson, we know that that John's disciples gets sort of confused, you can say, and sort of jealous because everybody's going to Jesus. So this is where we're picking up. Everybody's now at Jesus being baptized by Jesus and Jesus' disciples. And if you remember, they were baptizing in the Jordan River at a place called I Know near Salamin. That's what the Bible told us last week. So we can see that John the Baptist's ministry, because everybody now is going to Jesus, because he's pointing them to Jesus. You can say that John the Baptist's ministry is coming towards an end, right? You can say that John the Baptist 
sort of pass the torch, so to speak, to Jesus. So John has done his work. He's paved the way, just like God sent him to do here. He's paved the way for Jesus. He's becoming more popular than John the Baptist, right? And the Jewish population sees this and they're flocking to Jesus. But that's a problem for the Pharisees. Verse 2. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So the scripture tells us right here that it wasn't necessarily Jesus that was baptizing, but it was Jesus' disciples that were baptizing people. Verse 3. So he left Judea and he went back once more to the Galilee. So we see that although they have hundreds and maybe thousands of people coming and flocking to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized, Jesus just cuts it off. He leaves. And, and he retreats back into the Galilee. So what's happening here in verses 1 through, 1 through 3 is this right here. We see that Jesus comes onto the scene. And he gets, so to speak, on the Pharisees' radar, right? And, and you see the Pharisees were known what I call the champions of Old Testament theology. Now what do I mean by that and why do I say this, right? Because today, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Today... There's something going around called replacement theology. And it's unbiblical. It's very evil. It comes from the devil himself, right? It's unscriptural. And it's a theology that says that God is finished with the nation of Israel. And, and he's replaced all the promises and all the prophecies concerning the Jewish people. In other words, that God has replaced the Jewish people with the church. And that he's done with Israel and the Jewish people. Now, the church. They do have promises, right? But the church does not replace Israel. The Bible does not teach this, right? But you see there's, there's some people in church and there's even, there's even ministers in church and, 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 and pastors in church that really teach this and really believe that the church has taken the place of the nation of Israel. Right? Let me give you an example of what the Apostle John talks about in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we know that the church doesn't go through what's called the great tribulation. It doesn't. I mean, the, the apostle Paul talks about that in First and Second Thessalonians, right? But, but what you see is that there's a lot of people. When I talk about the great tribulation, I'm speaking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, of that seven-year tribulation period, right? All that's for is for the Jewish nation. It's for the Jewish people. And it's for unbelievers. Right? It's not for the church because the church believes. And, and the Apostle Paul talks about that, that believers, in other words, he's talking about the church, that you will not go through the wrath of God. So that tells me that, that we will not be in what's called this great tribulation period. And we know for a fact, according to prophecy, according to Old Testament prophecy, and also according to John in the book of Revelation, that all of this has to happen, this tribulation period and the great tribulation period. Why? So the nation of Israel and unbelievers can turn to Christ and know that he is the Messiah. I want you to understand this. There's 96% of the population or so of the Jewish population that are that's still waiting for the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Now we know that that's false because we know that Jesus, he came, he came as a baby to save, right? That's what he did. He came as the Messiah, but, but he died. He crucified at Calvary on the cross for our sins. He bore the sins of the world because he's the Lamb of God. Look what John the Baptist says when he was baptizing at the River Jordan. He sees Jesus approaching, and he stopped the people, and he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who taken away the sins of the world. John says, I'll baptize you with water, but he the one coming right here is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Amen. He's going to baptize you in the fire, right? The Holy Spirit. That's what he was talking about. But we know that Jesus came to bore the sins of the world and he died. But on the third day, we also know this, that the father raised him from the dead. Amen. And right now he's sitting at the right hand of the father, God in heaven. Amen. In paradise. So, so we see that he's going to, He's going to rapture up the church, but who's going to be left? If, if the Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation, who's left 
is the Jewish people, the unbelievers of this world. Because the Bible tells us that a third of the Jewish nation, a remnant, will be saved, right? And he's going to protect that remnant, right? And we know all of this happened. You see, a lot of the things happening in the world today shouldn't be catching us off guard if you know scripture, if you know prophecy. It shouldn't. And I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news for some of you, but it's going to continue to get worse as we move along. And I've said this over the last two years or so, right? I mean, you can, you can believe this, that there's going to be another pandemic fixing a hit. And there's going to be many more after that because Jesus teaches this in the Gospel of Matthew, right? That in the last days we can expect all this, right? Disease and pestilence and, and earthquakes and so forth, right? Natural disasters. And, and Jesus relates that to birth pains, that, that as time goes on and time gets closer and closer towards the end, towards his second coming, that things are going to ramp up, they're going to pick up, and it's going to become quicker and more violent, more intense, right? So, so you better believe that it's not going to get better, this world. It's, it's just going to continue to get worse. But I want you to have hope in this, that it's all a part of Jesus' plan, amen? It's des Jesus designed this for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to get his chosen people, his chosen nation, to turn back to him. But replacement theology says that the church is going to go through the great tribulation period. That's my point I'm trying to make. And that's false doctrine. That's not true. It, it's simply not biblical is what I'm saying, right? So, so we know this, that as time ramps up and as we get closer to the end times, right, there's going to be an antichrist that's going to rise up into the scene, right? Let's kind of go back in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we know that towards the end, all the whole world, will be against Israel. So that should tell you, that points to a one world government. And if you look where we are today, we're very close to a one world government, people. I, I'm just telling you, that's, that's where it is. We're very close to a one world religion. This one world religion, and, and all you can do is Google it. I, I'm not gonna sit here and tell you because there's a lot of you that listen to this podcast that's, that's very religious, so to speak. And everybody's religious. I want you to understand that. But some of you take religion more than the truth of God because the truth of God stings because that's not what you've been taught, right? It's not what you have sort of been brainwashed, so to speak, right? So I, I want you to go Google this. This one world, this has been happening over the last two years. This one world religion is, is coming into existence either in March or April of this year, right? And all you need to do is go Google it. And you're going to see who's the head of this one world religion, who started it. So the one world religion is, is right here. It's there. And what is next to follow is the one world government. And we're not far from that. See, we're fixing to be in a cashless society. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation talks about. So if you don't believe we're in the beginning of the end times, then you're fooling yourself. Then you don't know scripture. You're denying the truth of God, right? But you see, there's, there, there's many churches that's, that's teaching this, that we're going to go through this period. They're teaching replacement theology. And we know that, that as the end time comes, the whole world is going to be get together, but, but Israel is going to be by itself. And they're going to be attacking Israel. But there's going to be this one man that rises up, the Bible teaches. And this one man is going to be called the Antichrist. Now, at the time he rises up, the Jewish people won't know this. And he's going to save Israel. And he's going to come to Israel's defense. And the Jewish people are going to say, man, this is it. We've been waiting for this warrior, this Messiah. See, because the Jewish people believe in two Messiahs. They believe in Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. Right? And they don't put too much emphasis on Messiah ben Joseph. But they put a lot of emphasis on Messiah ben David, the warrior that's going to come and save them from the world. And that's exactly what this Antichrist does, but he deceives them. And he's going to build a temple for them. I want you to understand that if all of this is going to be in place by the time the Antichrist comes into power, I mean, all, all, everything's, everything's being laid out right now. The cash, the society, the, the materials to build that third temple, which they are. They're, they're ready to build the third temple. If you do your research, I've been researching this the last three, Two, three years. 
They have everything in place. They're they're ready to start sacrificing red heifers. And they're going to start that in April of this year, the Jewish people. So if you don't think we're close, we're very close, right? And we know that the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, this Antichrist protects the Jewish people. He fights for the Jewish nation, right? There's peace in the world, so to speak, because of this man. And he's going to rise to power. And he's going to be declared ruler over the whole world. But at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation period, what happens? This man goes into the Holy of Holies because there's going to be a third temple being built. It's going to already be built. And I believe he's going to fund it or this one world government's going to fund it. And he's going to go into the Holy of Holies and he's going to declare himself God. And that's called the abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew. And when that happens, the Jewish people, the Bible says, a third will flee. They're going to flee to modern-day Petra, which I think is in Jordan, right? That's what I believe they're going to flee to. And the Bible says that Jesus will protect the remedy. Actually, the Bible says that because Jesus shortens the day, because if he wouldn't shorten the day, nobody would survive. See, you got to go back. Let's go back to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, right? When Joshua was fighting the enemies, they were trying to conquer the promised land. Right. And, and, and they were losing battle after battle. But but eventually they start gaining force, Joshua, and they start winning little battles. And that this last battle that they got to conquer. Right. The Philistines. And and Joshua says they're fixing to be it's fixing to be nighttime. And remember, in these days in the Old Testament, they didn't fight at night. They just slept. They fought during the day. And Joshua pleads to God. He says, God, if you just would give us a little bit more daylight, a little bit more time where we can see, we can finish this off and we can conquer the promised land. We can conquer these people. And what does God do supernaturally, right? He adds hours to the day. It's daylight. It's longer, right? Well, the same thing's going to happen at the end, but it's just reverse. He's going to shorten the days. Because the Bible says if he wouldn't shorten the days, then what would happen? No one, no one would survive, right? And because of that, that remnant's going to be saved. And because they realize they were wrong, they're going to cry out to God. They're going to cry out to Jesus. And when they cry out, Jesus comes back at the second coming to defeat the whole world to defeat the evil, to destroy evil, to do away with evil. And when they look upon the one that was pierced, the Bible says they're going to cry and they're going to mourn and they're going to lament for Jesus. Amen. Right. So when we look prophetically at the prophets, if we look prophetically at the book of Revelation. Right. We know that it is descendants of Jacob and unbelievers that go through this great tribulation. So when people say that the church believers will go through this great tribulation. This is false teaching, right? Because of what the Apostle John spoke about in the book of Revelation, right? That Israel and unbelievers must go through this because a remnant of the Jewish nation must be saved in order for Jesus' kingdom to be established, amen? So we see here how in a very unique way that God is affirming his promises through his word. But here's the problem. The Pharisees, they had Old Testament theology, what I call. What does that mean? What I mean is this. They replaced the commandments of God, the revelation of God with the traditions of the elders, man-made rules, man-made laws, and they focused more on this than they did the commandments of God, than the word of God that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, right? And in Matthew 15, we find that Jesus is very clear about this, that the traditions of the elders, man-made laws, man-made rules, causes one to turn away from the truth of God, from the commandments of God. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. They were turning people away from God's truth in order to bring them under bondage, under leadership. And this isn't God's will, people. You see, Messiah's purposes and plans were against that. He wanted people brought under what he calls this easy and light yoke, right? And the burden of God, that the burden of God would be placed upon him. That we can rely on him. 
Because when we rely on him, he's going to lead us beside quiet and still waters, right? He leads us to that pathway of righteousness, you can say. He leads us in a joyful life, in a praiseworthy life. But you see, the Pharisees, they weren't about none of this, right? So because of this, there's going to be a conflict that takes place between the Pharisees and Jesus. So you see here that Jesus leaves and he he goes back into the Galilee. That's where he's headed. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is not running away. You might say, well, why is he leaving? Because it's not his time yet to argue with the Pharisees. It's not his time to have a confrontation with the Pharisees. Remember, everything is according to God's timing. Amen. See, another reason we can say why he goes back into the Galilee is because of prophecy. The scripture says that the light of Messiah, in other words, his revelation will begin in Galilee. It's not going to begin in Judea. So this is why Jesus leaves. He's fulfilling prophecy once again. So he leaves and he goes back into the Galilee. Now remember what Galilee stands for. Galilee means revelation. So what we're going to come upon here is a great piece of scripture that's going to give us great revelation. It depicts why God sent his only begotten son into this world. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now what the scripture's telling us is this, that he's leaving Judea and he, he has to return back or he's going back to the Galilee. Now, in reality, what he should have done, he should have just gone straight north, right? Through the Jordan River Valley to reach Galilee. It would have been a straight shot for him. So the scripture, what the scripture's telling us here doesn't make sense. So why does he go through Samaria? Why does he pass through Samaria, right? He veers off to go through Samaria. Now, doesn't make sense. Why? Because it's out of his way. Also, this land, Samaria, is very hilly. They have mountains. They have hills. They have valleys, right? So, so one would have to climb up and go down and go up and go down. So if someone were trying to get from the area around Jericho to Galilee, they surely wouldn't take this route. They would take the straight route, straight north. Actually, today, if if you look at a map, there's a highway called Highway 90 that stretches exactly what I'm talking about. It's a straight and flat shot. I mean, just straight north. So why does Jesus go this way? Why does he veer off and go to Samaria? Well, here's the biblical truth. Because God wants to show us something, right? You see, whenever there's something in the scripture... To us, in other words, our human knowledge, right, that doesn't make sense like this right here, this example that I just gave you, there's godly revelation that lies in there. In other words, God is trying to tell us or show us something. God wants to send a message to us. Now, let me give you a little background on the Samaritans so you can better understand what's going on in the story. Remember, Israel was once one nation. Now, it is today. But at one time, Israel was separated into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom, right? We, we know that in, in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, right? The northern kingdom had zero good kings. They had none. The southern kingdom had a handful of good kings. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Well, when the northern kingdom and its capital of Samaria fell, right, to the Assyrians, many Jews were deported to Assyria. And most of them Jews that left that were deported were males because they become slaves. So what happens is who's left is mostly women. So what the Assyrian government does, because the Assyrian, the, the Assyrians back then ruled the world, right? Like the Roman Empire did later on and the Babylonians after the Assyrians, the Assyrians were ruling the Middle East. So what they did was they stationed government officials, so to speak, to watch over the Northern Kingdom, what was known as Israel at that time, right? And because of this, intermarriage took place, right? We see this in 2 Kings verse 
17, chapter 17, verse 24. 2 Kings 17, 24 tells us this. So the intermarriage between foreigners and Jews would have left the land in a mixed race, so to speak. And they became known as Samaritans, right? Now, to the Jews in the southern kingdom, in Judah, man, this was considered impure. I mean, this went against, this, this went against the word of God, right? Because God gave them commandments. Now, we, we just know the Ten Commandments, most of all of us, right? We know the two stone tablets that Moses came down Mount Sinai with, and that's what we go by today. And that's great. That's wonderful. But if you really know Scripture, God gave them 613 laws and commandments. And one of those commandments that God gave them was that you are not to marry outside the Jewish race. Why? Because God gave an explanation. God said that they're going to turn you to their heathen gods. That you're going to commit idolatry because you're going to worship other gods. And that's exactly what happened. So to the, to the pure Jews in Judah, man, they hated the mixed race of the Samaritans. They didn't communicate with them, right? I mean, they, it was pure hatred for these people. So, so they wouldn't even intermingle. They wouldn't communicate. They wouldn't talk whatsoever with them at all. But you see Jesus here, right? He has a reason. To go to Samaria. Now remember, Jesus is Jew. Right? But he has a reason to go there. See, with Jesus, there's nothing that's based on cultural restrictions or cultural traditions. Right? So what he's going to do is he's going to travel to this place because he has work to do. He has a job to do with this Samaritan woman that he's fixing to meet at Jacob's well. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkor, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Now, when we look at Jacob and Joseph in Scripture, we need to remember a very, very important truth. In a very unique way, Joseph relates to Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because Joseph saved not only his family and not only the Hebrews, but he also saved the world. What do I mean? Remember, let's go back to the book of Genesis. And Joseph is held hostage. He's in slavery to Egypt. But Joseph has a dream, right? He has a dream that a severe drought is coming. So he goes to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh finds out about Joseph and about Joseph's dream. So he brings Joseph in and he asks Joseph, how do we should solve this, right? So Joseph goes back in prayer to God. And God, through a dream again, reveals the results of what's going to happen. You see, the message for some of us is that, see, all of us dream, right? And if you're really walking in the spirit, if you're really close to God, if you committed to God, like he wants you to be committed. That some dreams you have, God will reveal things to you through your dreams. So we should never disregard our dreams if we walk it in the Holy Spirit. If we have a true relationship, if we have a true commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And he reveals to him, you know, save up for seven years. Save up grain throughout the whole nation of, of, of Egypt. And if you save up, then the seven-year drought that comes, you're going to survive it. And that's exactly what Joseph did. And he goes to Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh, this is what we need to do. And Pharaoh trusted Joseph. And because of this, Joseph is what? He's second in command of Egypt. And the whole world comes to Egypt to do what? To get food, to get grain. So Joseph saved the world. Jesus came as the son of God, the lamb of God. He bore the sins of the world on his shoulders. Why? To save them. He went to the cross at Calvary. He died a suffering and, and horatious, ferocious death, right? And all the sins of the world, the problems, the troubles, everything was laid on Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And he took it. He took it so much that while he's on the cross at Calvary, they wanted to give him some type of sedative. And Jesus said, no, he denied it. Why? Because he wanted to go through all that pain. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves the world. Amen. He say he wants to save the world. 
And you could be saved by having a relationship with him, by committing your life to Jesus today, amen? By surrendering to him, by inviting him into your heart, by following the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you, amen? Now, we know that a promise of Messiah, right, it, it is made through prophecy, is made through scripture. And, and, and that, that, that promise of the Messiah, that, that Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And that stems from Jacob. So, so that's why you see Jacob and Joseph. Man, that, that should set off in our mind right here. Man, this is, this is huge. This is very important truth. This biblical truth right here, right? We also know this from a Torah standpoint, that when we look at the life of Joseph, that there's great revelation for understanding the work of Messiah, being able to identify him, right? So it is not surprising that at this location right here, this place called Sukkor, it's very close to allotment of land that Jacob gave his son Joseph as an inheritance, right? Now, understand that there's a connection between inheritance and kingdom. See, ultimately, the name of the kingdom in its final state will be called the New Jerusalem. Now, why am I saying this? Because New Jerusalem means to inherit the will of God. So in Hebrew, you hear a lot of Jews say, Shalom, Shalom. Right? Maybe some of you might have heard that. Well, what does shalom mean? This is what shalom means. It means peace. It means to restore. It means completeness. It means tranquility, right? This is what the new Jerusalem, this is what heaven, as we know it, is going to be about, right? Jesus is going to restore everything new for us. And when we get to this place, it's going to be peace. Jesus has completed his work. There's going to be tranquility, right? That's what the new Jerusalem is all about. Amen. Shalom. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. And it was noon. Some of your Bibles might say the sixth hour. So let's go back to that first text in verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Now, when we look at well in the scripture, well is there for two important reasons. First, well speaks of water. And water has to do with life. And life, in biblical terms, represents the kingdom. The second thing is this. We know that many places in the Old Testament, when someone comes to a well, what would happen? Well, in a very unique way, you can say, marriage would take place. An example of this is in Genesis 29. When Jacob meets Rachel, he meets Rachel at a well. And we know that eventually they get married, right? And Jacob has sons. That's how we get the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, right? Because you might say, why is this all important? Because Jesus will be talking in this, not only lesson today, but the next two lessons after. Jesus is going to be talking to this Samaritan woman and marriage will be brought up. Restoration will be brought up. So when we hear these terms, right, marriage, restoration, the first thing that should come to our mind is the kingdom of God. So. He's coming here to this place called Sukkor in Samaria, right? Now understand, Samaria, this place where Jesus is right now at Jacob's well, it's a place of idolatry at this time. It's a place where people had turned away from the teachings of God, the commandments of God, and they embraced their own teachings of man. So we can say it's very similar to what is happening with the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Judea. And look what else happens in verse 6. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. And it was noon or the sixth hour. Now, I want you to see something here. This term well is going to be mentioned over and over and over again. And remember, when we talk about well, we think about water. So once again, water represents life. Life has to do with the kingdom. So he will be speaking a message here on the kingdom. 
and a kingdom reality. That's what he wants us to see in that scripture here in that text. Now, notice the, the scripture tells us it's noon or the sixth hour. Now, remember, in scripture, numbers are very important, right? Now, before I get to this, in Jewish culture, the morning started at 6 a.m. That was the first hour. At 9 a.m., that was the third hour. At noon, it was known as the sixth hour. Then at three in the afternoon, it was known as the ninth hour. And we know that's when Jesus died was at the ninth hour. Then back in the evening, it's known as the 12th hour at six in the evening, right? So it's noon here. And, and you can say that he's thirsty because he's been walking a great distance. So he sits by Jacob's well. Look at verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this is a very important point here, right? There are so many important hints here that we can just see the outcome of this passage. And you might ask why? Because first of all, to begin with, there's a well. And it's very close to the land that Jacob leaves Joseph, his son. Now, remember, Joseph represents Messiah. He represents Jesus Christ. We see as well that it's noon or it's the sixth hour. Now, remember, numbers are important in Scripture. So the number six has to do with grace. Grace has to do with the fulfillment of God's will. What God provides so that his, the will of God can become a reality in our life. And what, what, what we see, the next thing we see here is this, this woman coming to a well. Now, remember in Scripture, every time that a woman takes priority in Scripture, it speaks about the concept of redemption. Now, remember what Jesus is teaching about. He's teaching about redemption here, right? That's the message that Jesus wants us to see. So Jesus says to this woman, will you give me a drink? Now, to us, this may seem common. I mean, it's noon. He'd been walking probably a great distance, walking for a long time. He's going up and down hills, going down valleys and so forth. So it seems normal that he's thirsty. It seems normal that he wants water. It seems normal that he wants to drink. But this is not what the passage, the message of the passage is talking about, right? Again, we look at this passage and, and us, our human mind, says Jesus is thirsty. He needs a drink because he's been, he's been walking so long. But that's not the passage. We have a Samaritan woman. We have a Jewish man that's together, right? Now, this, this wouldn't happen back in Jesus' time. And you might ask why. Well, I'm getting to that in a few minutes. But what I want you to also see here is this. What is this passage teaching us, right? This passage is teaching us this. And it's going to all make sense in a few minutes. Just, just bear with me. That when we follow the traditions of man, we're going to miss out on the revelation and the restoration of God. Amen? In other words, what God wants to do in our life. You see, this woman, she was blinded by the truth. And you might ask, why was she blinded by the truth? She was blinded by the truth because of her religion. She was blinded by the truth of her culture. Remember, they're in a place of idolatry here where they went away from the commandments of God, where they went away from the truth of God, and they're following their man-made laws, their man-made traditions, their man-made rules, right? So be, because she denied truth and she believes her religion, she believes her culture, she believes her traditions, and, and, and she worships that, she has it wrong. And a, and a question I have for you right now is this. What traditions of man are you following today? In other words, are you blinded by truth today? Do you take your religion over the truth of God? That's what Jesus, the message that Jesus is trying to teach us here. In other words, what's more important to you, Jesus is saying? Is the teachings of man and man-made rules and religion more important than the word of God? Now, I want you to understand we're all associated with some type of religion. All of us. But what takes priority in your life first? Are you blinded by the truth? 
Do, do you follow strictly your religious rules and laws, man-made rules? Because religion is man-made. I want you to understand that. And I'm going to tell you this. There's coming a time in the near future, very soon, that the church is going to have to make a decision. See, a lot of people, a lot of Christians call themselves believers. That I believe in Jesus and I live for Jesus. But there's coming a point in time that they're going to have to choose between religion and the word of God. The truth of God. Jesus says this, not blight once still. Jesus said this, that they have all been spoken to and told about the truth. But they're going to deny the truth and they're going to believe the lie. You see, and pastors, ministers, priests. They're going to have to make a choice. The congregation is going to have to make a choice coming up in the very near future. Are you going to believe religion? Or are you going to believe the word of God? And there's going to be a separation of the church. The Bible teaches that. And if you follow the traditions, then you're going to lose. If you follow your religion, then you're going to lose. See, our life, our religion, our faith must be based on the truth of God, amen? It must be based on the Holy Bible, amen? It must not be traced on the traditions of man. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, that if, if you believe in the traditions of man, that is going to forsake you the revelation of God. <laughs> you losing out is what he's saying. So, so let's sum up what's happening in, in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 4 here. See, Jacob's well was part of the property originally owned by Jacob, right? And the well itself, just to give you a little background, is anywhere between 120 to 200 feet deep. But it wasn't a spring-fed well. It, it was a well that, that the rainwater and the dew would seep in and collect at the bottom. That's, that's what kind of well it was. Now, I want you to understand that well in those days were located outside the city along the main road. So what would happen is twice a day, early in the morning and late in the evening, women would come to draw water. Now, women would do this, not the men. That's just, that's just the culture back then, right? Just your traditions. So this woman, if you look at the scripture, says she came at noon. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, why does she come at noon? She comes at noon probably because she wanted to avoid people. Because of her reputation. And here, Jesus, she meets, she meets this Jewish man named Jesus. And Jesus is going to sit down and talk to her. And Jesus gives her a, an extraordinary message to this woman about fresh and pure water. That this water would just quench her spiritual thirst forever. Amen. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 states this, that his disciples had gone into town. To buy food. So we see the disciples, they leave him. They go into town. So Jesus is left by himself with this woman to, to tell this message to this woman, to minister to this woman who's lost, right? Who's very, who's very, very sinful, who has a bad reputation. But Jesus has a very important and beautiful message for her. And the message is not only for her, but it's for all of us, right? Because we're all broken. We're all sinful, right? We've all done bad things in life. And look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman says to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now this verse relates to what I told you in verse 7. If you go back to verse 7 and you look, these two are connected. You see the woman, she's thinking about her tradition. She's thinking about her culture at this time. Because you see, this woman, she doesn't live in the area, but she's a Samaritan woman. And she goes to this well to draw water every day, twice a day. Now, what does this mean? This woman is following her traditions. She's following the culture, which means she's following the religion of the Samaritans. And this religion was an offshoot of Judaism. Now, I want you to notice that they're at Jacob's well. And in this time, the people of this area right here, they worship near 
Jacob's well on one of the two mountains that was present in that area. They believed in their heart of hearts, these people, that, that Jerusalem, right, didn't have any significance anymore. And because of this, they didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on Jerusalem. And because they didn't put a lot of emphasis on Jerusalem, they weren't going to inherit the promises of God. You see, that's why it's very important for us today to always back Israel, to always be an ally of Israel, to always love Israel and support the Israelis' people, right? Because it's God's chosen people. Because God says this, the Bible says this, that, that if, if you are good to Israel, then God will be good to you. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, right? But Jesus says this, that if you curse Israel, then what? God says, I will curse you. And what's happening today in the world? The United States is turning its back on Israel today. And because the United States will not be so, and it's going to continue to get worse. That Scripture's very adamant about that. What's going to happen to us? We're going to face the wrath of God, this nation will. That's why we need to continue for God's protection over our family, our friends, our loved ones, over this nation, that, that God would spare us his wrath because it is coming, right? So you can say, going back to the scripture, that these people, the Samaritans, they're walking in a falsehood. This woman especially, she's walking in a falsehood that would lead her empty, astray, you can say, thirsty. She's unsatisfied. The, the Samaritan people are unsatisfied. So Jesus says, give me a drink. And notice how she answers Jesus. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You see, I want you to understand that this woman, she was a Samaritan, a member of a hated race by the Jewish people. Also, this woman, she has a bad reputation. See, this woman, we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks where she was married five times. And she's living right now with another man, and she's not married. And even the Samaritans look down upon this. So she, she's in a public place. She has a bad reputation. She did some terrible things in her life, right? Now, at this time, in, in this place where Jesus is right now, no respected Jew especially a man, would talk to a Samaritan, especially a woman. But this is not what Jesus did. Jesus goes out of his way to meet this woman because he knew this woman was at the well at noon because he has a very important message for her, right? So what's the message for us, you say? The message is this, that the gospel is for every person. See, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, if you're sick or you're healthy. It doesn't matter about your past sins. See, what Jesus is trying to tell us here, like he did, that we must always be prepared to share the gospel with whoever, whenever, at whatever, at any time, at any place, amen? See, Jesus crossed barriers here to share the gospel to this Samaritan woman, to share the good news. And he's telling us, we as his disciples, we also must be willing to do the same. Now, let's go back to the verse. Look how Jesus responds to her in verse 10. Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, he said, you have asked him. And who would have given you living water. Now, let's, let's look at that first text where it says, if you knew the gift of God. And let's focus in on the word new. Remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So we can say in the Greek language, the word new means remoteness. This shows something that is far removed. So what he is saying is this. That if you knew the gift of God, in other words, she's far removed from the gift of God. She's far removed from the truth of God. She's far removed. Why? Because of her religion, because of her culture, because of her traditions. 
That's why. Now, let me ask you a question today. Do you know the gift of God? Or, or is that gift very far away from you, just like this Samaritan woman? In other words, are you married to your religion? Or are you married to the Word of God, this Holy Bible, to the truth of God? Or are you married to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. Amen? Look what else the Scripture tells us. And who is it that asks you for a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water here is a concept, right? It is known to those who are prophetic literate, you can say. Those who understand prophecy, those who understand the revelation of God, they understand that living water has to do with kingdom, has to do with the spirit of God. Why? Because we're going to see this in John chapter 7, a little bit later on in a couple of months, where Jesus speaks about living water, that this living water will satisfy, that this living water has a kingdom aspect. Now, why does Jesus teach this in John chapter 7? Because he's speaking in the context of what the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 14. Because if you look at Zechariah 14, it speaks about living waters, meaning the Spirit of God coming and satisfying us with the kingdom satisfaction. Amen? So over and over and over, we need to ask ourselves, are we understanding the revelation of God? Are we prophetically literate so that we can understand Scripture, especially New Testament Scripture, and what Jesus is teaching? Just like he's teaching this Samaritan woman, right? Or are we like this Samaritan woman who has allowed her own culture, her own traditions, her own religion to rob her of the things of God? Are we like this woman? Or are we allowing our religion, our traditions? Our man-made laws that we follow to rob us from the things of God. Now, let me close with this. What did Jesus mean by living water? You see, in the Old Testament, many verses speak of thirsting after God as one thirsts for water. And we know this, that God is called the fountain of life. Psalm 42.1 says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Does your soul long? For the truth of God. Does your soul long for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right? See, let's go back to the scripture. In saying that he would be the living water that could forever quench her thirst for God. You know what Jesus was claiming to be here? Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. You see, an only Messiah, only Jesus Christ of Nazareth can give us this free gift that satisfies our soul. See, we need to drink of this water that he offers. It's a free gift. It's free. We need to know him. We need to have an intimate relationship with him. Why? So you can be in the eternal kingdom of God where there's water, spiritual water, where there's life. Because when you have this water, he's saying, you will never be thirsty again. Amen? And that ends our lesson for today. We're going to be back next week. We're going to continue on in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Next week, we'll be covering verses 11 through 19. Until next week, go be a light for somebody. Go be an inspiration in a positive way. Go spread the good news about Jesus. We love you guys. We appreciate you tuning in. Until next week, God bless.